Well, welcome everyone to the Canon Illuminate podcast series. My name's Bob Pickles. I'm Head of Corporate and Government Affairs at Canon and the host of the Canon Illuminate podcast series. Welcome to the latest episode of Illuminate Connects. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by three excellent speakers from the field of sustainability. First of all, Stuart Poor is Director of Sustainability and Government Affairs for Canon EMEA. Mike Barrett is Executive Director for Science and Conservation at WWF UK. And Heather McRae, Chief Executive of the Ideas Foundation, an education charity and a founding partner of Canon's Young People Programme. Together, we'll discuss whether the current pandemic poses a risk or an opportunity to the sustainability agenda, exploring this from a social, environmental and corporate perspective. There was a lot of momentum around sustainability topics before the pandemic started, so I wonder whether the situation we find ourselves in today has opened up that conversation or perhaps limited the opportunity to drive the sustainability agenda. Stuart, I'd like to start today's conversation by asking you how you look at this. So I think compared to the 2008 financial crisis, I think the current situation is stimulating a richer, more profound debate about how we build back better. I think we can look at clean, profitable growth that's just and equitable, which is exactly what the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals is all about. It's supposed to be holistic, social and environmental. I think it's Partly understandable at the moment that businesses will be focused very much on short-term survival. And I see that there is a realization of vulnerability in the, in the face of wider societal forces, perhaps in a way that hasn't been the case previously. So I think the key word that you're going to see percolating through boardrooms over the coming months and years is resilience. But I think it's also the case that organizations have had a chance to adjust rapidly already. They've had to change already in view of the crisis. So, for example, when you look at workplace management, the rapidity with which we had to move to remote working and then the plans we've had to put in place to get back to the office, it's been rapid, it's been dynamic, it's been flexible. And so increasingly, the idea that confronting things like climate change and diversity and inclusion, you know, really wicked problems is going to be too hard. I just don't think that's going to wash quite so much. I think we've shown a level of response and rapidity of response that that just nullifies the argument back against those things. In the face of rapid change, people working in businesses have had time to reflect on their core purpose. So by that, I mean, you know, what's, what's our role in the world? Are we part of problems? Or are we part of solutions? And if we're part of solutions, how can we use what we do best to really help? And in Canon's case, for example, we recently signed an open COVID-19 declaration whereby we committed not to assert patents and copyrights against activities and organizations that are actively seeking to address and find solutions to the virus. Now, that might all sound a little bit sort of dry and technical, but trust me, in the world of technology and for a company like Canon, that's a really, really big deal. So I think every company needs to think about what it's got, what its assets are, what its role in the world is, and how it fits in with these sort of macro issues. So 
to very directly answer your question, Bob, I think we are looking at a mixture of risks and opportunities. But ultimately, for me at least, this is opening up, not shutting down the agenda on sustainability. Oh, thanks very much, Stuart. That's a, a great starting point to our discussion today. And um, I wonder if I can bring Mike in here and share perhaps a more environmental view on some of the things that Stuart's just mentioned. This is fundamentally about the overall relationship between people uh, and planet. And what is absolutely clear is that human health and planetary health are, are now essentially the same thing. The risk, I think, at the moment in terms of a, an immediate knee-jerk response to the current pandemic will be to, to grasp the lowest hanging fruit. So we've seen a lot of focus, for example, on the wet market in, in Wuhan. Now, if we were to simply uh, respond to the current pandemic by looking at wet markets or even just by tackling the illegal wildlife trade, that would miss the broader point of the underlying destruction of nature, which fundamentally drives this increasing emergence of disease risk. And of course, also is a key driver behind other environmental challenges, not least global climate change, also issues like food insecurity. Uh, and we should be clear that the likelihood at the moment is that there will be a big food security challenge coming down the tracks in coming months as a result of what is happening on the ground in many parts of the world right now. So, therefore, the solutions have got to be about tackling what the primary drivers of uh, the loss of habitats are around the world. And, and much of this relates to the, the food and agriculture system, our continued encroachment into intact areas of habitat to produce food in a fundamentally unsustainable way. Now, thinking about how we build back from the, the current challenges that, that we find ourselves in, and this is where I think there is a fundamental opportunity and a fundamental risk. We could build back by focusing on embedding sustainability in global supply chains. That, of course, both minimizes the risk of future shocks, not just uh, pandemics, but also the impacts of catastrophic global climate change. And it also embeds resilience into supply chains. It means that supply chains will be more resilient to any external shocks that do still occur. That's the clearly the, the right response. The wrong response, and where I do think that there is a real risk, is that we simply have a, a dash for short-term economic growth, you know, boosts to, to GDP by reversing quickly to business as usual. And what we know is that if we go back to business as usual, if we simply try to, to build back on the basis of the way that we currently produce and consume, then we actually lock in the certainty of the next pandemic and we lock in the certainty of dangerous global climate change. And that is clearly not a sensible thing to do. We'll find ourselves in a few years wondering why we're in the space yet again of working out how we build back our economy because it will have suffered as another shock. And it doesn't have to be like that. We know the solutions. It's, it's a matter of will now to change the way that we produce and consume in order to respond to those. For all those who have over many years sort of regarded global environmental problems as just too tricky to challenge, you know, how, how on earth do we change at a global scale in, in response to these challenges? What we do know from the current pandemic is that when there is a, a political imperative and a political will, we can change. We can change fundamentally. It can be painful, but we can change fundamentally. So the argument that this is how things have to be, that we can't change, just doesn't wash anymore. We can change, and we now know that we have to change. Yes, that's an excellent summary, Mike, and chimes in with what Stuart was saying on that point. 
it's no longer good enough to say that we can't do this. We've just proven that we can. Heather, I'd like to turn to you now and broaden the conversation a little bit further. Before the pandemic, there was a real surge of support for the sustainability agenda from young people. You spend much of your life around the education system and with young people in particular. What impact do you think the pandemic has had or will have on the role of education and the young people agenda in the short and long term? Right, that's a really good question. I guess there's perhaps two different ways of looking at it. One is from, I guess, the education system side and one is from the, the point of view of young people. I think for the education system side, it's been quite interesting because actually they've also had to go through a digital transformation But they've also realised that actually some of the inequalities that actually are part of the UN Global Goals in terms of health inequalities or digital access actually affects the life futures of the young people that they're teaching. So you've got some young people who are having a really high quality education and other young people are having a very different experience, both in terms of the environment in which they're trying to learn, but also the tools that they've got in order to access learning. So I think from an educational systems point of view, it's quite interesting and, and looking at the resilience and what education looks like in the future. Is it going to be exam focused or is it going to be more practical? Is it going to be much more sustainability in the curriculum? And I think for the education side, you know, this acknowledgement that the planet is vulnerable, that actually everything is interconnected, whether it's health, whether it's science, whether it's actually civil rights, you know, there's a whole stack of really, really big tricky issues here. And I hope that at an education angle that actually there'll be a chance to pause and reflect and say, what can we learn? How can we actually have conversations with young people about them being part of the change? I think from a young people angle, I'm getting mixed messages. Um, I think some young people are, again, taking time to to think and to look at what can they do um, in terms of actually being voices for change. And you see from the Young People Programme, you know, when we've done programmes about pollution, that they've actually got a very stark very direct way of approaching the problem, which is slightly unfiltered, but actually really, really good because actually they, um, they're they just much more articulate in a way of actually addressing the problem and much more direct and bold in the language that they use. And so we're finding as well that young people are really finding their voices using TikTok, using digital images, using different platforms to express their opinion, whether it's actually on social injustice, whether it's about digital divide, whether it's about the climate, whether it's about health inequality. So I think it's um, giving young people an opportunity at the moment to to know that their voices are being heard as well. Excellent. Yes. Thanks very much, Heather. And, and Mike, I wonder if I can come back to you and just reflect then on the Heather's position there on the sort of social angle of this with young people and, and the role of science in uh, the education um, of our next generation of, of workers and managers. Um, what's your view on how we can support that? Well, first of all, I think it's absolutely the case that what we're trying to, to to do here, the problems we're trying to address have been caused by previous generations and the current generation and are problems which are, are going to impact so hugely future generations. Uh, I, you know, I look at I look at even, you know, what's happening right now, the impact of the current pandemic and the, the impact on my own children whose, uh, you know, whose schooling has been utterly disrupted and who now have a huge uncertainty about where that takes them in life and, you know, what the future job market looks like. There, there are so, you know, and that's at a, at a, in a UK sense, you know, looking at, at the challenges that, that we face here. There are even more profound challenges, uh, I think, 
around the world. Uh, if we look at the likelihood now, as we understand of a global food security crisis coming down the, the tracks, that might impact us in the UK with you know raised prices, perhaps a lack of availability of some of the goods we'd usually expect. In other parts of the world, this is going to be quite literally a matter of, of life or death. And again, we've you know we've got young generations of people growing into a crisis that they should never have had to expect to face. Uh, the same would apply in Brazil, for example. We look at what's currently happening with the destruction of the Amazon rainforest. Attempts going on right now in, in the Brazilian Congress to legitimize land grabbing and the impacts that that has on the, the local communities and indigenous peoples who who steward those areas of, of forest. You know, the, these are the victims of the the global destruction of of nature. So, in terms of the role of, of the science. I actually don't necessarily think it's it's about the science anymore because the science is so clear. We do understand what is happening across the world, the way that the environment is being destroyed, the way that the climate is changing. We know with absolute clarity what the causes uh, of this are, and we know that much of it relates to the way that, uh, frankly, wealthier countries produce and consume. That is really what it comes down to. Uh, so if we think about the building back agenda right now, you know how we reconstruct and rebuild our economy, the question again, I think, is are we going to act on the science that we know and are we going to build back an economy which works in a sort of a short-term electoral cycle or are we going to build back an economy that works for future generations of, of people? And clearly, the answer has got to be the latter. And there can't be excuses anymore you know, not to do that. It is absolutely incumbent on our generation to respond to what we know, to respond to the science, to make sure that we build back a world that works and supports the future generations of people who are to come. Thanks very much, Mike. And Stuart, if I could turn to you on that subject, both you and Mike have mentioned the phrase building back better. What do you think is going to determine who gets out of the blocks first, both socially and environmentally, beyond this crisis? Well, I think every business is taking the opportunity to use the months we've had in lockdown to gear up and be ready commercially to rebound and get moving. So you can look at it through a commercial optic and say, you know, it's it's who's got their business processes and their product portfolios and their sales strategies in the right place. But I think anyone who's any business that's failed to look beyond the short term horizon and think about these longer term social issues will very quickly come unstuck and get overtaken. I think the smart businesses are starting to think about their, as I said earlier, their resilience in the face of these these shocks to supply chains that are in some cases susceptible to shocks. And if we fail to properly recognize that and to manage risk, both social and environmental, be it kind of climate resilience or thinking about human rights, and I think you're starting to see the human rights agenda become much more relevant in terms of the, the Black Lives Matter agenda. I, I, I view that as essentially a, a human rights agenda, among other things. If we fail to properly face up to those risks, then no amount of short-term commercial rewiring is going to insulate us against the threats and, and challenges we're going to face in the longer run. So I think those businesses that will build back better and that will respond in the most effective way will be those that have able, been able to see and balance both the, the short-term commercial needs with the longer-term need for risk management and resilience. Absolutely. Um, 
Mike, would you say we need to consider things like access to nature and our natural environment when we look at our future plans to build back better? Speaking personally, I'm just feeling incredibly fortunate. I, I can walk from my front door into open countryside. Throughout the current lockdown, I've been able every day to go out and take exercise and be out in, in nature. And I speak to uh, colleagues, of course, every day who live in very different settings, people who are in uh, flats in the centre of London, and certainly have you know have found a large part of the lockdown so much harder as a result of not having that route to escape and to access nature every day. So I I think we've learned something quite profound about the importance of our access to nature. Of course, at a global scale, we've seen that play out in in different ways as well. Some of the amazing uh, satellite imagery of the reduction in air pollution in various parts of the world as different cities uh, have locked down. You know, the stark drops in emissions and, and improvements in air quality in cities in China, for example. Um, it's not that we want a world within which all activity ceases and everybody is locked down and, and the environment then improves. But this should tell us something again about just the importance to all of our lives, the quality of our lives, by having access to to the outdoors, to nature, to fresh air, and the health benefits, of course, that that is also going to bring. So again, thinking about the building back agenda, thinking about, for example, those families who are bringing up children in urban areas uh, suffering from, from asthma. Do we want to go back to a situation where our streets are clogged, where air pollution is degraded again rapidly with all health risks that that is going to bring? Or do we want to build back in such a way that we recognize the benefits that there have been to the improved environment in, in recent months and lock those in? You know, our, our children growing up in, in urban areas in this country and, and elsewhere, they've, they've got the right to breathe fresh air. That should be a fundamental right on this planet. How on earth can we in our generation you know, start to build back an economy that prevents them from doing that when we know it doesn't have to be that way? I, th I think this this whole process we've all been through has opened up some really interesting and pertinent questions about well-being. I think as Mike's pointed out, access to clean air the fact that you can stand in Delhi now and see the Himalayas for the first time for some generations in their entire life, uh, but the same applies in, in London, in Paris, in Rome. People's appreciation of clean air, along with other parts of nature, I think is, is now prevalent. But also, if we look at some of the debates around better ways of working, you know, you've got this interesting debate in New Zealand, for example, with the Prime Minister raising the idea of a four-day week as a means of increasing well-being and prosperity. I think what all of this, for me anyway, points to, and it's a, it's a point that Heather made around interconnectivity. I'm intrigued by, I don't have answers to this, but I'm intrigued by the interconnectivity of the issues we need to think about here. My worry is that because of the complexities here, these profound complexities, we won't allow ourselves the time to properly consider them. We won't come up with structural solutions to them, and we will end up putting them in a too hard to deal with box and just lurching back into a fossil fuel based economy where we're working ridiculous hours and, and not really thinking about nature anymore. I think everyone knows there's something utterly profound going on, a once in a generation opportunity. But is it too much? Is there just too, are there just too many factors to consider here that means we end up just shunting it into a, I just can't deal with that box? and we go back to business as usual. 
Stuart, thank you. Some really deep and difficult questions there, and um, the answers to them are difficult to see. Although it may be that uh, Mike earlier said, you know, that uh, human health and planetary health are now effectively the same thing. You can't separate these subjects. They are one and the same, and we can't really afford to tackle one without tackling the others. Heather, during that discussion, we talked about access to nature and the impact on um, well-being. And, and I wonder if you have any perspectives on how that is changing or moving in, in the current circumstances. Yeah, I think for some people, they may well look back on this as being a golden time of really positive mental health when parents have actually had a chance to spend time, quality time with children. They've had access to outdoor play. Um, noise pollution levels have gone down and you can hear the bird song. Um, we've seen children outside looking at the stars because actually there's been less air pollution. So I think for some young people and families, this will actually be, you know, a golden time of positive mental health where they've actually had a chance to reset and find a new way of working and, and living um, together. For others, I think it's going to be a really dark time where, you know, the different problems seem overwhelming and that the divide between you know poverty and wealth um between access to the outdoors and fresh air and access to other food basics um will make this a really difficult time and a difficult time looking forward because actually people are looking at employment and mortgages paying the bills so i I think it's going to be a really difficult time and with different people having different experiences of this and i think one of the other worries i think for a number of young people is what does this mean for them in terms of employment longer term where will the jobs be who will get access to those jobs? You know, what will the economy be looking like? So I think there's also another layer of concern as to what is the world that they're growing into. Now, hopefully, young people will feel that actually there can be change and be part of that change and see the the value of the medics and the scientists who are trying to grapple with problems and actually solve things. So I'm hoping on one level, this will be a real motivator that actually there are problems, but actually through human ingenuity and through drive and through working together, we can actually solve those problems. But I think there might be also um, a potential depression um, and negativity of, of, oh my goodness, it's too much. And, and I think that's where education and education about sustainability and, and giving young people a voice and seeing how they could be part of a better future is really, really important. Thank you very much, Heather. Um, Something that I would briefly like to touch upon is policies and governance, and more specifically, the role that we and the role government plays in helping us overcome some of the challenges we're facing and deliver some of the things that we've discussed today. The underlying problems, the underlying causes of so many of the the challenges that we face at a global scale uh, at the moment, not, not just the current pandemic, but our ongoing march towards dangerous climate change, the horrendous fires that we've seen in the Amazon and Australia, uh, the destruction of coral reefs around the world, yet another uh, bleaching event, the horrifying way that our ice sheets are melting, uh, you know, forest fires within the Arctic Circle. All of these things are about the way that we have failed to steward nature. And that is primarily caused by the the current model that we have of production consumption and through international supply chains. So the policy response has to be 
to shift those supply chains towards being embedded upon the principles of sustainability. Now, um, there is actually a, there's a blueprint sitting on the on the shelves of ministers' offices right now. Over the last year or so, the the government set up something called the Global Resource Initiative. It was it was an initiative set up by Michael Gove when he was Secretary of State for Environment, and that brought together government, private sector, the third sector, and generated a really powerful policy blueprint. Uh, This was published on the 30th of March, but of course, unfortunately, just after everybody had gone into lockdown. So it didn't necessarily get much attention at the time. But it's got some really powerful policy recommendations. It talks about, first of all, the need for there to be an objective for the UK to reduce its environmental footprint on other parts of, of the world. It calls for a due diligence regulation whereby companies have to report on the environmental impact of their supply chain. So it brings transparency and consequently a level playing field for those who who wants to act in a more sustainable manner. It calls for greater transparency on flows of finance, uh, for example, through the City of London. So moving beyond just um, disclosure around carbon impacts, but moving towards a broader disclosure of the impact of flows of finance on the global state of of nature. Now, at the point that that report was produced, I think it was perhaps not surprising that we would then have moved into a a phase of of policy debate. You know, how should we respond to these this set of, of policy recommendations? What I think and what I hope the current crisis will have shown us is that that debate simply shouldn't even exist. It should frankly be a complete no-brainer that this policy blueprint now has to be implemented and implemented urgently. If we do this, if we implement this policy blueprint, if we do act as a nation, both public and private sector, to reduce our global footprint on the world and act as a, as a global exemplar in this space, then we are genuinely building our way towards a sustainable economy that will reduce significantly the likelihood of future catastrophes uh, such as pandemics, but also the threat hanging over us all of dangerous climate change. Interesting. And, and Heather, for, from your perspective, is there anything you'd like to add to that? I guess there's a couple of things. One is the importance of schools as part of the community and this whole community cohesion, I think, is a really important aspect. I think the second one um, is just the importance of creativity and creative enterprises, whether it's theatre or television or the arts, um, for, for mental health. And also for education. And and I guess one of the concerns I've got is that um, in the process of of actually recovery, that the cultural institutions that are actually part of our fabric actually don't survive. And I think that's a real worry in terms of longer term well-being and the quality of life that we've got. So, you know, it's difficult to look at the priorities, but I'm hoping that actually some of those um, that education and creative facilities actually don't get left behind as well. Thank you very much, Heather. Yes, and I think um, obviously uh, reputation is a big subject in all of this, and um, how we face these subjects and challenges is uh, is ulti- will ultimately be the way we'll be judged. So, uh, thank you very much, Heather. But obviously, one of the things we'd like to do for listeners to this podcast is to give them tips or tricks or small business takeaways that we can give them as a pickup from this uh, going forward. So, Mike, can I start with you? 
the destruction of nature is, is something that happens at a scale now which has global impacts. So it's not something that happens in another part of the world, which we can look at, sadly, without being concerned about the impact on us. For example, the destruction of the Amazon rainforest drives climate change. That impacts us all, all over the world. And the causes behind this also operate at a global level through international supply chains, through the way that we produce and consume. What that means is that for each of us individually, whether in our personal lives, whether through the companies that we work for, whether through our political actions, each of us individually make decisions every single day that have an international and consequently global impact. So I just think it's so important that we take the current moment to pause, reflect, look at what's happening in the world, and really reflect on what each one of us can do individually. The smallest choices we make every day ladders up into global significance. That's a really, really strong point, Mike. Heather, how about you? Um, I think one of the really important things is, is the sense that actually there can be action, that we can do things at an individual level, at a school level, at a community level, at a government level. And I think as well, just looking at some of the stories that are coming through from the images that were mentioned, you know, looking at the satellite images of the earth and looking at um, the lack of pollution and how can we see the world differently post-COVID and what can that comeback mean that can actually give us a sense of community and a sense of connectedness. Excellent. Thanks very much, Heather. Um, finally, Stuart. I think we all, at a personal and organisational level, need to be bold. We need to be courageous and we need to ask questions. As Mike very powerfully pointed out, the science is clear and we can see for ourselves on screens right now what's going on in the world. And we've just got to get in on, and deal with this, confront this, be positive take action, and crucially, never accept the unacceptable. Well, that's three three fantastic answers. Thanks very much, all of you. I, I wonder if I can just try to um, push you a little bit, though, and see if you can say anything more, just to drill down a little bit further. And what can we do or what can businesses do? What can we do personally, individually, to drive the change that you've talked about? Can I start with you, Heather? I guess there's a couple of things that I'm thinking of. One is about sharing time and expertise for, for some of the young people. It's looking at how do they find out more about the world around them? Um, are there some mentors who can actually come in and, and help them build up their own skills? Are there volunteering opportunities with you know people actually able to help with reading and perspectives of, about the world? So I think it's actually trying to help young people see the world from different lenses. And I think um, businesses have got a great opportunity to be sharing information, sharing skills with the future generation and with teachers as well. Thank you, Heather. Stuart? You need to, or you can think about getting involved in the conversation around sustainability in your organization, in your business more specifically. And if there isn't a conversation, then start one yourself or demand one from your teams and you know we're looking really closely at this at the moment. So at Canon, we're just about to embark on a big conversation around circular economy. How can we manage materials more sustainably, keep them in use for longer, take waste out of our operating model, help regenerate natural systems? And we hope that's going to precipitate lots of opportunities for people to think hard about our operations and our products and, and propositions. So don't sit back, get involved, throw in your ideas, consider what's possible. Uh, be audacious, because that's 
the sort of mentality we need to take in towards addressing these incredibly wicked problems that we face right now. Thanks, Stuart. That's great. And Mike, from your point of view? We need to think really hard about the personal choices that we all make, uh, whether that's the you know the food that we buy. Are we uh, buying products, for example, with sustainable palm oil in? So we can think a great deal about what we buy, but also uh, how we travel. You know, are we taking the most sustainable forms of transport? Um, where we even source our electricity from? You know, have we got ourselves on uh, renewable energy tariffs? Have we done everything we can to improve the uh, energy efficiency of our homes? There are lots of different personal choices that we can make. People I know often need a little bit of extra help with that. You know, people want to know where they can source information. One thing I would suggest is do have a look. Uh, online for footprint calculators. There are lots of them out there. There's one on the WWF website, which I'd really welcome people to, to come and use. It's just a way of testing the choices that we currently make uh, every day, what the environmental impact of, of those is, and how we might make different choices that can actually reduce our environmental footprint on the world. I have one final question I'd like to ask you, Stuart. You briefly mentioned this at the beginning of our discussion, but I wondered if you could share any advice you might have about how to get the sustainability topic onto the boardroom agenda. Because executive boards are under huge pressure to protect revenue and manage costs at the moment, if we want the conversation, we need to be realistic and we need to present it, frame it around a very hard and clear business case that articulates the need to future-proof our business against social and environmental context. We don't operate in a vacuum. We're not in a bubble. The COVID crisis has exposed our vulnerability to these wider social pressures in ways that has never happened before. But it's about breaking that down through the use of really good data and solid argumentation that executives can act upon. So be practical, come up with action plans, be clear whose job it is to deliver it, and then just get on and do it. And that brings us to the end of our discussion today. I'd like to finish by saying a really big thank you to Heather, Mike, and Stuart. It's been a fantastic and fascinating conversation to look at this from so many different angles. Thank you all for listening. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode. Bye.